You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Trojan fans, it's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham, and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Welcome to another episode of the Recruiting Blast podcast with Gerard Martinez. I'm your host, Kilior, who's crashing this podcast. And Gerard, this is actually the second time we've had to record this intro because news came out that we had to address. So glad to have you back for a second time, even though this is the first time for listeners. Okay, that's just confusing off the top. I don't know. <laughs> the second time, but it's the first time. It's the Keely Crashed Recruiting Blast podcast. But this time it was crashed by Keontae Ingram. And we know that a lot of Trojan fans would probably have some questions about the Trojans' newest transfer. So we decided off the top, let's just get it done and talk a little bit about this uh, latest transfer. Exactly. Well done. Perfect segue for me, Gerard. What is USC getting in Ingram? I know there was talk about, you know, skeptical USC fans not knowing how USC would be able to attract a running back out of the portal. What does USC get in Ingram and and how do you think they were able to get him here? Well, USC fans aren't the only one that were skeptical. I mean, you would have to be skeptical across the board just based on the statistics. You know, statistics are the easiest thing to recruit off of and USC just doesn't have them. And USC's got two senior running backs sitting there in Stephen Carr and Vi Malapai. So you knew it was going to be difficult seeing that they weren't able to convince any high school running backs to be able to come along. And so the portal is a little bit of a plan B, but you're dealing with kids that have limited eligibility. And they've already been through the recruiting process one time already. So this time around, these kids, or at this point young men, are looking at their eligibility, they're looking at the amount of carries that they can get, and they're trying to maximize that so they can get a look from the NFL. So this was one of those things that USC was really, you have to give them a lot of credit because they've done very well in the transfer portal this far. And Keontae Grimgrim being, you know, six foot, 220 pound running back from Texas, he's a junior. Uh, He's had some decent games at Texas, you know, he did actually have a few starts as a freshman. He was a guy that came in out of Carthage High School as a solid four-star prospect and a player that uh, there was a lot of expectations for when he came to Texas. Now, in terms of style, there's a little bit of Stephen Carr, actually, to his game. He's a taller, lankier running back. He's a bit bigger right now than Stephen Carr. Stephen Carr has sort of hovered around that 205 maybe 200-pound-pound range, whereas Ingram is more of that 220-plus range. He might actually be better playing a little slimmer, um, but he's lanky. He's got very good speed. He's a little faster than Carr is right now. We've talked about Carr. Seems to have lost maybe a step since he had that back surgery, whereas Ingram still has a step. I don't know that 
you know, coming out of high school, he would have been faster than Carr, but I think he's faster than Carr right now. So, you know, when you've got that 220 pounds and you've got some speed and he's got a really good first step, he's, he's very much a cutback runner. He's a guy that sort of sees the hole, gets to the hole, and gets that one cutback, and then he tries to get upfield. He's got decent sort area quickness when he gets the ball in his hands and he has his space but he's not necessarily a guy that's going to make a whole bunch of people move, uh, miss. Excuse me. He is one of those type of running backs that makes one step, makes one cut, and then he wants to get upfield. So from that standpoint, there are some comparisons a little bit with Stephen Carr, um, not necessarily a guy that you would compare to maybe you know, who USC misses uh, with uh, Marquis Stepp, who's now you know, gone, and maybe that's a replacement for USC. Yeah, I was going to say the unique thing about Marquis Stepp as far as the composition of USC's running back room, he brought some power to that that position group. Does USC necessarily get it back with Ingram or is he just a more like, like you said, a Stephen Carr? No, I, I don't think he really compares with Stepp. I think Stepp, you know, there's some intangibles there with his vision and there was also just that ability to lean forward. He just had ability to not get tackled from the first guy and you know that initial contact his yards after contact were very very good and he could square up and he could just slide and sort of just seem to bounce off of tacklers and so I think with Ingram you're getting a guy again a little more lanky um, a little taller runs taller he does have like I said pretty good short area quickness for a guy his height but he is more of a one-cut runner. He is not a guy that's going to make a bunch of different people miss. He's not necessarily a guy that shows on film that he's going to break a bunch of tackles and get into the open field. Um, he is a little more of a slasher in that respect. And, again, he reminds me of Carr just in some ways because he's also a very good receiver out of the backfield. Um, but in terms of, yeah, that replacement because you lose step, he's not really it. And I don't know – that USC is going to find that guy. I mean, it's a really, it's again, kind of going back to the struggles that they've had offensively in rushing the football. You wonder, even with Ingram, like what does he see in USC's offense that he feels like he can come in and he can actually, you know, have a big year that, that he's going to be able to do more at USC than he did at Texas or that he would do at Texas under Steve Sarkeesian. You know, we talked a little bit about um, just, you know, Tim Drevno and, the, the offensive line coaching and the offensive line splits and the, the offense in terms of its design and how much that is an issue and not just necessarily personnel or the coaching. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. I think it's definitely a good get. It's another running back. That's a quality running back, a guy that, you know, can, can run the ball 20 plus times. He's not like a small scat back that you have to, you know, hold back how many, carries he's going to get per game he's a guy you can feed the ball to for sure and so that's big just because if you do have a another transfer or you have uh, an injury you know he's a guy that you're not necessarily going to have to um, limit and monitor how many carries he gets he could be the guy that gets all the carries so it's going to be interesting to see though again how, how interjecting him is going to be maybe different than the running backs that they've used in the past and obviously the two guys that they have coming back at this point in time starters Malapai and Carr in that sense when you have a guy like Ingram come in are you wondering whether or not maybe Vivai Malapai might look at the portal again I know that's something that you and I both heard uh, rumors about is this a type of guy that you add on that might uh, cause other people in the depth chart to think twice it is interesting that you interject a guy that is an upperclassman 
and certainly he's coming in thinking he's going to get carries, right? He doesn't come unless he feels like there's a plan for him. So naturally there's going to be some insecurities probably from the running back room right now. And we've heard, quite frankly, every running back that is in that room has thought about transferring. You know, I've heard about Vi Malapai and Stephen Carr as well. And, you know, Kenny Christian has been talked about as a potential transfer. I know with Carr, that's the one guy that, from his side, he really likes USC, and it just seems like it's tough for him to want to leave USC for personal reasons. I think there's just a personal student side of it that he likes USC, and he's having a hard time thinking about leaving USC. With Malapai, that was really surprising when we heard that he could be potentially on his way out, and that sort of went away. And I know USC has been you know, circling the wagons a little bit and making sure that they re-recruit that room, and, and Mike Jenks, is talking to those guys and, and trying to give them some feeling like, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get this thing going. We're going to be able to run the ball better. And again, I want to point out a lot of people feel like USC is not running the ball enough. I don't feel like that's the issue. I mean, statistically, when you look at it, they weren't way crazy off in terms of the ratio of passes to running the ball. They, they did run the ball last year. It's just, they weren't very successful at running the ball consistently. And as we talked about before, also, it's kind of when they run the ball, and that's where you bring up Steph and whether this is a replacement for USC. USC was really bad at running the ball when the defense expected it. The short yardage runs, the third and two, third and three, USC has a really big issue at hand that they've got to, I think from a design standpoint with the plays and the offense, got to figure out because I, I don't know that anybody is really going to be all that successful if a guy like Marquis Stepp who's 235 pounds, six foot, and really a naturally good inside rusher, he himself is not finding a lot of success there. So I think that's something that whether you've got Keontae Ingram running the ball or Stephen Carr or Vi Malapai, that's something that USC is going to address. Yes, it's good that you've got a guy that's you know, over 215 pounds that can run the football because you know potentially he should be able to break a tackle against a defensive back or what have you, but – if the defense is really expecting it, it's not going to be a defensive back that he's going to see in the hole. It's going to be a big linebacker or a defensive end or a safety that can wrap. And so, again, that's, that's a little more of we need to make sure that formation-wise and play design-wise, whether it's misdirection or something else, we have something that will work consistently. Ingram is the fourth player that USC has gotten out of the portal so far this season. On the whole, how would you evaluate how they've done just getting guys out of the portal? I think they've done really, really well, uh, certainly. I mean, they needed another running back in this class, and that's kind of how you look at it. Uh, they get Brandon Campbell, who's a solid player, but they really wanted to get two running backs in this class. They've been wanting to get two running backs for a few classes, and they have not been able to. So getting another running back, getting another body, you want to make sure that you hold on to the running backs you have. Again, you know, we talk about transfers and, and all the conjecture and speculation that goes on with that, but you really want to have five running backs at least um, on your roster that are scholarship players. So you want to hold on to the running backs that you have and bring in Ingram. You get, you know, Xavier uh, Alford also, who probably was coming in thinking, you know, there was going to be two safety spots open there, but he does potentially come in and compete for Hufanga's spot. So you get a transfer there. And again, a, another sort of plug-in player. And all these guys are going to have immediate eligibility, which is really big. Um, and then you get Softshire, who... Ishmael Sopcher, the big 330-pound uh, defensive tackle from Alabama, might be the most important. He, I think from the standpoint of if you're looking at, at 
need and you're looking at talent and you're combining both of those and you're kind of crunching a, a rating number out of that, I think Sobster is probably the most important because you're going to lose Marlon Tuipolotu. Yes, you do have some other guys floating around. Brandon Peely, we hope, you know, like if you're a Trojan fan, you hope he can sort of live up to the expectation, the flashes that he's shown. You know, he's not a guy that came out of high school that was necessarily, you know, a big-time four-star, five-star guy, but we've seen flashes of him where he could be a guy that could be a really good football player for them, but he's got to stay healthy and he's got to be consistent. So he is there, but I think Sopcher, man, if, if he plays up to his level of talent, he could be a very dominant zero technique. And in that type of defense, it can change so much. It's such a big deal, especially if your secondary is playing well, which their secondary has played well, man, Sopcher could be huge for them. And Katie Nixon, someone who will talk about, a little later in the podcast, uh, another receiver comes in, has experience. I think there's potential for him to be able to blossom in USC's offense a little more. I think when you look at him profile-wise, maybe you expect him to be a little more elusive. Maybe you expect some plays where uh, maybe he's breaking some tackles and he's doing some things in the open field that really sort of you know open your eyes and you know you get a little bit of that jaw drop sort of wow man this guy's a big time playmaker. That's kind of lacking a little bit from his highlights. Uh, but again, you know what? It's another receiver and a guy that is experienced. He's played in the Pac-12. He could be a kick returner as well. I mean, it's solid just to have another body there that you know is dependable. And certainly, like I said, maybe in USC's offense, which I think fits him better than what Colorado is doing, he blossoms a little more. Alrighty, Gerard. Well, let's get into the rest of the podcast that we recorded before this news broke. Uh, first off, let's start with the most recent commit that USC picked up, 2022 composite five-star cornerback uh, Damani Jackson. What is USC getting in this cornerback? They're getting a guy that's uh, 6'1", almost 6'2", 190 pounds, can legitimately run a 4-4 in the 40-yard dash, a guy that uh, if he ran track competitively would probably be sub-7, maybe 10-6. And I think a player that, you know, athletically is a step above anything USC has had there in quite some time. They've had some good cornerbacks, but they haven't had guys with that type of speed and size combination. And so I think, you know, right off the bat, five-star, number one in his position, and it sort of picks up where they left off with Corey Foreman in terms of that statement, taking back the West. We talked about you know, the strides that they made, the progress that they made during the 2021 class. And now you're getting to 2022 and where they kind of put a stamp on that with getting Corey Foreman, uh, at least, you know, locally, they've certainly taken big steps in taking back the West. I think regionally they still have some work to do, but this is starting the class off number one player in the state. So USC goes from a point of missing out on the number one player in the state of California two years in a row and Kayvon Sibido and Justin Flo to now you get Corey Foreman. And if you're able to lock up Damani Jackson, and obviously there's a long time till signing day, 2022, but if you're able to lock up Damani Jackson, uh, you potentially get the two best players in the state two years running. So that's more par for the course for USC. That's what USC needs to be doing. That's expected of USC. And so it's a big way though, to start the class because usually you don't get those type of five-star recruits, early in the class like that. And it's going to help USC build because Damani Jackson is also a very good recruiter. 
Yeah, that actually stood out to me in his article with Greg Biggins. He talked about how he wanted to commit early and kind of be that type of leader in the class. What does it mean to have a guy like Damani being kind of the recruiter of the class? And is that unique for a cornerback to do that? It is a little unique. I mean, he's been around a lot. He's been around the seven-on-seven circuit, the training circuit. He's been a known commodity for quite some time, even before he got to modern day. So he's a guy that's well-connected. But for cornerbacks, yeah, it's not necessarily – something you see all the time certainly you know being vocal and being active behind the scenes it's usually the quarterbacks it's the guys like Miller Moss which you expect to be you know the catalyst for a class that you can sort of build around Uh, but for this class yeah Damani seems like it's going to be the guy that's going to be pushing the narrative and really helping USC which you know in the defensive secondary they don't really need that help with Dante Williams obviously he's proven that he can uh, stack classes and He's going to be able to bring in um, some top you know, talent, and he's already secured, obviously, one of the best classes in the nation in the 2021 class. When you've got Sierra Wright, you've got Prophet Brown, you've got Anthony Beavers Jr., you've got Zamirian Gordon, and you've got Kalen Bullock, and you've got Jalen Smith, which is a tremendous defensive back class, but you're able to butt it up against having Damani Jackson already committed in the 2022 class. And USC also got just a few weeks ago commitment from Fabian Roth, six foot, 200 pound cornerback from Bishop Gorman high school. So you're talking about two of the best, uh, not only locally, but nationally at the cornerback position. And you just got a great cornerback class. That's what makes an elite recruiter. An elite recruiter is able to stack classes position wise year in and year out and there's not that well you know playing time and depth charts they get it done regardless and we saw that with t martin at the receiver position and we're seeing that right now with dante williams at the cornerback secondary position i think some people though their take was like oh another cornerback we usc needs something else they need an offensive lineman they need a running back what do you say to those people who don't necessarily like stacking up at one position group well yeah, it's you want to stack up at every position group. Obviously, that's a, that's you know that stands to, to to reason. But you want to get the best players you can at whatever position you can when you can get them. It's not like we're not going to take Demonte Jackson because we've got too many good cornerbacks. We're just going to sit around and wait until we can get a five-star offensive lineman. It's not like the NFL where you can trade players and say, well, we're going to get Demonte Jackson, five-star cornerback, and then we're going to turn around and flip him in a trade to Texas to try to get a five-star offensive lineman. That doesn't work that way. So you take what you can get, and certainly USC has to improve offensive line recruiting, and we could talk that, about that a little bit you know, later with – the hiring of Clay McGuire and sort of the, you know, the recruiting that's gone on at offensive line over the past few years with the different offensive line coaches that they've had. But at the end of the day, you have to take the talent where it is. And right now, Damani Jackson is the number one player in the state of California, whether that changes or not remains to be seen, but you get the number one player in the state and you get the number one player at that position, you bring him in because ultimately cornerback position is going to be much better the secondary is going to be much better and it is a position that USC is expanding with that defense we saw games last year where USC was not only running a base nickel defense with three safeties or a nickel corner but they ran some five safety looks against Washington State they had five safeties on the field at the same time so you know you're expanding that position a little bit you're getting more players at that position on the field at the same time so you better recruit depth You mentioned it already, but USC now has back-to-back 
2021 and 2022, the number one prospect in California in Corey Foreman and Devonnie Jackson. What does this mean for what USC is building as far as recruiting momentum? What are recruits seeing in what USC is doing? Well, I think, A, again, talking about Dante Williams, he's a really good recruiter. He's relentless. I think he relates well. And he's been the point man and been involved in, in those recruitments, even with Corey Foreman, who's not necessarily his position, but still a guy that he had a good relationship with. And Dante was the catalyst and at the forefront of the recruitments of Justin Flo and Kayvon Thibodeau. So he's a guy that, again, being an elite recruiter, he can recruit outside of his position and still land guys. For USC, from a momentum standpoint, it's early. You're coming away from a good class in 2021, which was huge. You know, they were able to turn the tide on that from, you know, being in the, the high 60s to low 70s in terms of national rank to now you're top 10 and you're trying to get that 2022 class to be top five, really. I mean, you want to continue to progress and get back to where USC was year in and year out with Pete Carroll, and even into the Lane Kiffin-Sark years where they had some top, you know, one, two, three classes. And so from a momentum standpoint, it's a continuation of the 2021 class, um, and it's also, you know, securing certain positions early on and being able to focus on other positions. I mean, last year with the 2021 class, one of the things that stood out to me is that, you know, they knew they were going to lose to Lenoa Hufunga. Okay. We thought they were maybe going to lose Isaiah Pullamal as well. So what did that class, what did that coaching staff do? Craig Niver, who also has to be credited as being a really good recruiter and has been very good uh, getting to USC along with Dante, they secure Anthony Beavers, Jr. Samir and Gordon and Kalen Bullock all before April. So you've got, th- you got three top safeties, okay? At one position, you've got three top guys that all get verbally committed before you're even in the May evaluation period. Now, obviously, last year was a little different because of COVID, and you didn't have official visits, and you know maybe some things would have happened, some things would have shifted. Guys would have taken official visits to other places and maybe would have been, you know, more – there would have been more competition for their, for their commitments. But as it stood, there was three guys that you got done. And then you got Jalen Smith done in June, and then you got Prophet Brown done over the summer. So you had five guys already done, committed, end of story at that position, a neat position, before you get to the season. And I think that in itself is very big. Being able to meet the secure positions of need early and then be able to focus on other positions of need and other positions in general and being able to evaluate and focus there and not worry so much about those positions you've already got guys committed at. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, as you mentioned, USC also picked up 2022 four-star cornerback Fabian Ross. Uh, he wait, Dante Williams wasted no time. It was two days after Corey Foreman committed, so uh, the momentum didn't stop there. What is USC getting in Ross? Well, Ross, and I take a lot from talking to Blair Angulo, who's our uh, 24-7 uh, Mountain West analyst who have seen him multiple times. We've seen Ross also in person. We saw him just lately at the Under Armour camp, which was, I say lately, it was, it was 2020. It feels weird to say last year because yeah. last year was so nothing. I mean, it feels like you, when you say last year, I feel like I'm going back to 2019. I will skip 2020 in my head. Right. But we saw Fabian Ross there, uh, a thicker, stronger cornerback, uh, a guy that a lot of people see as a hybrid nickel safety. Uh, he's a guy that you want to keep near the line of scrimmage. Um, he's an enforcer of types. He's very physical, very aware. He's a good tackler in space. And he's the type of player that's a, a new type of player that you can actually put against 
a scat back running back. So when you see these teams like Washington State that really their running game is throwing the ball to the running back out of the backfield, a guy that's, you know, a 5'10", 180-pound scat back running back that's really good in space, that's where a guy like Fabian Ross comes in, who's able to come in, has the speed, has the agility, but also has the physicality to be able to come up to the line of scrimmage, take on a block, shed a block, uh, or make a tackle in space. And that's really what everybody talked about with Fabian Ross. And the thing that Blair really wanted to convey is, you know, this is going to be a very important commitment for USC. It's an early one. And we tend to overlook or kind of forget about these early commitments because, you know, you get down to signing day and it's all about how you're going to close the class. And those are the kids that everybody sort of focuses on making the class or breaking the class. But he said, you know, Ross is going to be very, very important. Like he's, he's coming from a good program at Bishop Norman. Uh, USC's offered other guys from that program. Um, and just in general, when you're, again, talking about taking back the West, that doesn't mean just getting the best kids in Southern California or California in general. You also have to go to Arizona, Nevada, and other places. And this is a good year for Nevada talent. So they are sort of stepping out and getting outside of just Southern California and regionally you know, getting one of the best players. USC did lose someone in the 2022 class this over the course of the weekend. They lost a four-star linebacker, Junior Tuyalamaka. He decommitted. I know he recently was offered by Notre Dame, and that kind of played into it. What do you take away from that decommitment, Gerard? From everything I've heard, he just the offer wasn't like, oh, I got to go to Notre Dame. It was more, okay, I'm getting some major scholarship offers, and I haven't really gone through the process. I want to give the process a legitimate shot. And so, you know, USC is kind of all he's known. He's grown up USC. Um, you know, again, Bishop Alamany kid. So, you know, Miller Moss is there. Jalen Smith is there. Um, his cousin, uh, Sa'i um, Mapakatolo, was committed to USC also. And he was at Bishop Alamany. And then now he's gone and uh, he transferred to Mesa, Arizona. I think he was playing for Red Mountain last year. And he didn't end up at USC. He ended up decommitting. It was one of those things where USC, I think, moved in another direction uh, for various reasons. And so that was a little bit, you know, his cousin there. And I think that was something that also maybe came into play a little bit. But more than anything, I think he just wants to see if he can have a process, you know, and, and entertain these schools and go on official visits and do that stuff. And hopefully for the 2022 class, those guys get a chance to do that. Obviously with 2021, those kids – you know, that, that opportunity was taken away from him. You know, a kid like Jay Toya, who has been committed to UC since he was like a sophomore. I think it was like 2018 he committed, yeah. and he never took official visit. He never visited another school. He never even took an unofficial visit to another school. Wow. So that process of, you know, the red carpet treatment and other schools loving you up and all that stuff, he was sort of waiting for that, and that was taken away from him. So I think kids like Junior Tuyalamaka – want to be able to have that ability to do that. And, you know, hopefully they get that, um, that sense of, you know, being a blue chip and being coveted and being, you know, all that hard work that you had being paid off. But it sounds like USC is still very much in the picture and he's still very high on USC. So it's not one of those things where he's eliminated USC and he's going somewhere else. He just really reopened his process. Now, I know it's really early, so uh, I know you'll hate me for the on-the-spot question like this, but how would you rate USC's 2022 class so far, and where do you project it going? It's number seven nationally, so it's easy to rate. 
it's easy. True, it's number true. seven nationally. It's number one in the Pac-12. That's about as much rating as you can get, you know, early in this period. Um, they have a commitment from Devin Brown, three-star cornerback out of Arizona. Um, you have uh, obviously positions everybody's really wants to know, you know, can USC start to recruit at an elite level at? It's going to be offensive line and it's going to be running back. You know, those are two very serious positions for USC. It is an interesting year because you're going to have more players potentially leaving the program um, in the 2022 cycle because you had the backlog of everybody getting another year of eligibility. So you've got more seniors than you have ever had you know, before, um, technically. I mean, when you look at them, they're going to be called you know, juniors, redshirt juniors, whatever. But in terms of the amount of years they've played, they're going to be seniors. So guys like Stephen Carr and, and Vi Malapai, uh, in addition to you know, the other players that would be normally seniors in a normal cycle. So that's going to be interesting to see you know, the outgoing and how many rides are available. I think it's still going to be another class where USC is going to have a full class that they're going to offer scholarships to. Um, but uh, it is still kind of some question marks as to, you know, okay, going forward, are you going to have that, that, that number on the roster? Is that going to change like 85 to a hundred? Is it going to go down? Are you going to have to be under 85 again? I haven't really heard anything definite about all of that. So there's a lot of stuff that we don't know and that could impact the class. But I think it's, it, it, you know, and this is the other thing that always comes in when we start talking about, well, how good could the class be? You know, is Clay Helton going to be the head coach? Because that's still going to be a big question at the end of the season. If they lose some games early on and the administration has to make a move quick, because I think in this day and age, you have to do that. You have to be very decisive about your coaching moves. I don't think you do yourself a lot of favor making that decision in November. Maybe the, the, the move is made in November, but the decision needs to be made earlier within your own athletic department and administration. Okay, first four or five games in, we know where we want to go with this right now. We know we want to make a change or we want to keep. And so that's always something in the last three years that's affected how you predict how the USC class is going to be. Because if you fumble that and you screw that up, sort of like Auburn has done, the class could fall through. You know, you're going to get a, a lot of these top players that they're just going to get pillaged from USC. They're going to get uh, pilfered, I should say, from, from the USC. So that's a big issue. That's a big sort of cloud that hangs over everybody's head. And then you say, okay, so maybe they make that move and Clay Helton's not the coach. Who is the coach? And what connections do he, does he have? What kind of recruiter is he? Ha is he? You know, and, and those, those are obviously going to affect – what USC can do recruiting in the 2022 class. So I think this season, more than last season, even if we had a regular season, even if it was a full season and COVID never happened, I think this is really more the year where we start to seriously think about USC maybe making a change if they're not, you know, on the way to winning 10 games, 11 games. And I think yeah. that that's Ultimately, where you want to be, double digits is ultimately you want to have a Pac-12 championship. You want to win double-digit games. That's where you've got to be, and I think USC has to know that in that first four or five games. You can't wait until November and see if they win 10 games. Okay, let's see. If they beat UCLA, that's not going to do it, not with the early signing period these days. Yeah. I think if you want to have a good class, you've got to know before then. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, as far as uh, the 2021 class, it's crazy. Next week is the actual signing period, uh, the second signing period. I don't know. What, what do you classify it at this point, Gerard, since the early signing period is kind of the time? An afterthought? 
<laughs> I guess that's how I would classify it. It's it's an afterthought. It's uh, from both schools. Yeah, it's just kind of you know uh, uh, icing on the cake. It's uh, you know hopefully getting a couple guys here and there, but it's not a day where you're going to get you know a bunch of commits. And now with the porthole, <laughs> our favorite thing. You're looking at recruiting that as much as you are really recruiting high school kids at this point. You know, yeah. most teams have got that class basically put together. USC has a couple kids out there that they're still recruiting, and I'm sure we'll talk about those guys later. But uh, it's really, you know, a lot of focus is on transfers just because those are plug-and-play guys. They've got immediate eligibility right now, and schools, I think, are scrambling just to try to get some quality out of there and fill some holes. And obviously USC has to too. And that I think the two positions they really have needs on right now, they're probably going to have to go to the portal. Yeah. I mean, with the addition of Clay McGuire, that was officially announced on Monday. Can USC kind of rock and roll now that they have a guy to actually sell to people in the portal? Because I know they, they, they missed on Wayna Morris and that's a hard sell if you don't have a coach in place at the time. Yeah, that was interesting. Cause you kind of wondered if, USC was going to try to maybe, you know, hire a coach that was involved with recruiting him, you know, or, or try to do something like that. And, and I think USC, I think it's a decent hire, first and foremost. Let me say that up front. I understand where people feel like it's underwhelming just because of the name and because he's coming from Texas State. But I understand on paper sort of where USC has to go from here. If you can't hire a big-name guy, if you, you know, strike out on a couple big-name guys – you've got to support Graham Harrell. And I think this is a mistake that, you know, Clay Helton kind of made early on. Um, and this was still when the old administration was there, obviously. And I don't think he had people there to really help guide him in, in trying to fill out his staff and, and, and really focus these coaching searches to, you know, candidates that are outside that Rolex. So, you know, with, a guy like McGuire, he's a, he's a real air raid offensive line coach. So he's been there. He's seen that various different programs, whether he's a running backs coach at Texas tech, which I think is a very nice little facet to his resume or your offensive line coach under Mike Leach at Washington state. You understand that system fundamentally. And that's really big because I mean, I've always talked about one of the issues with the gumbo offense is that you had Clay Helton, you had T Martin there and they were basically running offense that they saw some other guy run, uh, two other guys run. They saw Lane Cliffin run it, and they saw Steve Sarkeesian run it. But neither had really understood it, I think, from a fundamental standpoint. I don't know if they understood the why. They understood the what of the plays being called, but they didn't understand why those plays were being called. And if you're not there on the ground level of an offense being built, which that offense was built with Pete Carroll and uh, back in the day at USC. You know, Lane Kiffin was really the architect of that offense. Uh, truth be told, a lot of people think, oh, well, Norm Chow. Lane Kiffin was the guy that really drew up a lot of those plays in the playbook itself. Lane's a very smart guy. People think he's a silver spoon kid, and just because his dad was with the Tampa Bay Bucks, that Monty Kiffin basically made his career pathway. I'm sure those connections helped him, but Lane knows his stuff, and Lane really was sort of the whiz kid behind a lot of that. Norm's real uh, contribution was as a play caller and they're different, you know, and being a great play designer is not necessarily going to make you a great play caller and vice versa. 
And I think Norm was just really good, artful almost, in how he called the game. But the plays that he was calling, a lot of those concepts and those designs were made by Lane Kiffin. So that was sort of the seed of where things started with USC. And then you had Sark there. And I think with Clay and T, they just decided, hey, you know what? We like Lane's plays. Lane's a really genius guy. And then we like the the, the no-huddle thing that Sark is doing. And they just try to kind of throw it together, and they called it the gumbo offense. And it wasn't an offense. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a schematically, I think, sound offense. It was just, hey, we have a bunch of plays left over from Lane. Let's just call these in a no-huddle. So when you bring in Graham Harrell, you're bringing in a guy that really understands fundamentally the offense that he's running. Now, the debate is, is that the offense USC should be running? Is that the offense you should be running at USC? Yeah. I'll leave that open for debate. I, I, you know, I, I have my opinions, but that's you know, besides the point. It is an offense that he understands, and I think you have to support him as much as you can to see if it works. And having Tim Drevno there, I said cautiously, because I don't know a whole lot about offensive line coaching and I, I don't want to overstep you know because I don't know the fundamentals of certain things but I knew Tim Dreveno did not come from a spread system whatsoever he was a pro style guy through and through and so I kind of questioned okay how is that going to work when you're running that system when a guy that's never run those splits and doesn't understand all that kind of stuff now you hire a guy that does Okay, he understands it from the running game standpoint, and he understands it from the passing game blocking standpoint. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to throw your support at Graham Harrell and say, listen, Graham, we think you know what you're doing. We hired you for a reason. We were spending a million dollars on you. We need to make sure that we get your guy that understands the offense that you want to run. And whatever offense that is, because, I mean, we talk about air raid, but USC is not running air raid necessarily, not the traditional air raid. But maybe they do now. I don't know. I mean, we're going to see. They have two openings, uh, one being filled now with the offensive line. But, you know, I have J.D. Baker that's gone now. We're going to see if they fill that vacancy with another receiver's coach or is it going to be a tight ends coach or are they going to, you know, maybe take that over to defense. So we'll see if they double down and they want to run more air raid or it's an offense that they say we still want to have more pro-style concepts and we do want to have, you know, a guy like, uh, you know, Eric Cromenhoek in there that's, you know, kind of a halfback lead blocker because that's something you don't really see a whole lot in air raid offenses. Okay, I'm going to circle back. There's so many tangents I want to go on from what you just said. But first off, I feel like we were kind of sold when Tim Dreveno was moved over to offensive line coach that it didn't really matter that he wasn't familiar with the air raid. And now I feel like the story we're kind of getting is that, oh yeah, it did matter that he didn't know the air raid. How much will it help Graham Harrell's overall scheme if you do have a guy like McGuire coming in who is familiar with what he's running? You know, that remains to be seen. Uh, it's Again, I was hesitant initially to say that it mattered a lot because obviously the first question is to Tim Drevno, is that an issue? <laughs> You've never coached in this offense. Is that a problem? And according to Tim, it wasn't a problem. Now, you know, there's some bias in that answer, obviously, and he's confident in his abilities and he probably didn't think that would be an issue. Um, but was it an issue? You know, I think it was part the issue, but I think – you're naive if you're just going to throw that all on Tim Dreveno and say, oh, yeah, you know what, they just didn't block well, and that's all it is to it. That's why they couldn't run the ball. Because that's what we're talking about here is the run game. You know, the run game and pass protection. Pass protection was, was good last year. It was probably better last year than it had been the year before. But there were still some instances, maybe earlier on in the season, where 
Keith Slovis had a lot of pressure right up into his face, especially the interior line. I mean, that's where they improved the most over the year because against Arizona and Arizona State, they had guys going right up the middle on them. And Keith Slovis was basically just throwing the ball away because he had a defensive tackle or a nose tackle in his face. They adjusted and they got better with that. But obviously with the running game, they didn't get better. They just couldn't find a way to run the ball successfully. And it wasn't necessarily that USC didn't run the ball. If you look at them statistically, they weren't that far off in terms of the amount of attempts that their running backs had. It was just they didn't run the ball well. They had little spurts here, little stretches where they ran the ball okay. But one thing that we've seen, which has been a big issue for them, is running the ball when the defense is actually expecting it or running the ball consistently enough because the defense is letting them run the ball. So it's sort of those, those things where they, they, you know, they eventually feel like they've got to pass the ball because they're a pass possession offense, and the defense just waits until they're going to do it. Okay, you got eight yards there. Oh, you got ten yards there. You got seven yards there running the ball. Okay, but we know, we know this next play you're going to throw the ball, and we're just going to sit on it, and that's what ends up happening. And then the fact that they just get beat – at the point of contact when they've got to run on third and two. And I think that that part of it to me is more about play design. And it's about the lack of misdirection in the backfield when it comes to play action and it comes to reading and giving the quarterback option, an actual option, actually having the quarterback read that edge and run the football. And we see, I mean, you saw Tom Brady run for a stinking (laughs) touchdown the other week. Like, come on, please. You you know, King Slovis can't run for three or four yards. You have to do that, I think, if you're running out of the shotgun 99% of the time. Because when you're under the center, you turn your back to that defense when you're play action. They can't see the ball. I I mean, it's harder. You don't know. If you've got a good quarterback that knows how to play action well, you've got to stop and wait. Uh, who oh, is it the running back? That, no, no, no. I think it is a quarterback and you've got, and then you're rushing that quarterback as your key. But when you're in that, that shotgun, it's, it's just there. Like you just see the handoff, you know, if the guy's getting it or not. Now there's a little bit of pause and hesitation there, but it's not the same. And when USC doesn't run Keaton Slovis, you know, 99% of the time, and he's always basically going to hand it off. They just start guessing on it. And that's where USC gets a lot of negative plays in the run game behind the line of scrimmage, because you have guys crashing down, whether it's safety or linebacker off the edge, and they don't respect Keaton Slovis as a running threat. As far as John David Baker moving on to Ole Miss, if you're USC, Gerard, are you going with an inside receiver or are you going with a more traditional tight ends coach? I I would think you would try to go with the receivers coach. I, I they use the tight end and you know they do have a little more of a traditional tight end there with Eric Cromenhoek. And so offensively they do have that still. And and you still have Jude Wolf on the roster and Ethan Ray and both of those guys are probably more traditional tight ends. If you're going to look at and USC does categorize Drake London as a quasi tight end, even though, you know, by definition, he never puts his hand on the ground. He's not an inline guy. Um, you don't necessarily need that. You would want somebody who is more of a receivers coach. So I'm not familiar with, you know, the inside receivers coach versus a tight ends coach. Uh, there's been some talk of Prentice Gill, ASU receivers coach, being a guy that maybe USC is talking to and being interested in. And obviously that would be good from a recruiting standpoint because Prentice is a very good recruiter. So that would supplement Kerry Colbert to some extent. Um, But 
you wonder, okay, so who's going to take over and help with Kromenhoek and sort of his duties? Because that's, you know, he's a lead blocker in that uh, offense a lot of times. And he's a guy that he plays a lot of snaps. It's not like he's a situational player. So I don't know. And again, is it USC going to double down and really go air raid or do they stick with what they're doing? And in that case, you do have to have somebody there that's going to coach that H-back position. And I'm not saying Prentice Gill couldn't or a receivers coach couldn't, but you probably want somebody that has some experience with run blocking because that's the big difference there is that receivers coaches, you're teaching run blocking in a very different way than the guy that's teaching the H-back or tight end how to run block when you've got your hand on the ground or your back in a wing position. It's just a little different. You're looking at the field differently. You're doing more motion. There's just a lot more going on there. So you tend to have someone with experience in coaching that. Now, I know coaching turnover is just part of the game, the system, but what does this mean for guys like Lake McCree and Michael Trigg? I mean, it's a question mark. Certainly, J.D. Baker did a really good job being able to lock down Michael Trigg specifically because that was a guy that was coveted. And ironically, the rumors were that he was going to decommit from USC and maybe go to Ole Miss. So talk about a little bit of foreshadowing. You get J.D. Baker that ends up going to Ole Miss after the early signing period. You just wonder if that would have happened earlier if they would have had a legitimate chance to get Michael Trigg. And I know he had a good relationship with Trigg, and he really did a good job being able to lock down that commitment. Um, it's up in the air. Because, I mean, I think with Trigg, it's less up in the air because he is more of a Drake London type of receiver. And he's a guy that's really played mostly receiver. With uh, McCree, he's definitely been more of a move-around guy that's played receiver on the outside, but he's also played some of that H-back, and he's even put his hand on the ground. So – I look at him as being a guy that comes in for Kromenhoek, and he's more of a replacement at that H-back position in the offense, whereas Trigg, I think, is more of the receiver type, and it affects him less because he's basically coming in to be Drake London 2.0. I'm not saying he's going to be, but that's the replacement. That's sort of who you're plugging him in for. Now, circling back to more portal talk, of course, everyone wants to know if USC is going to grab an offensive lineman out of the portal. What are you hearing as far as, as that type of venture for USC? I mean, I'm not hearing anything specific. Uh, I think that's still definitely something that they want to do. The sell, like you said, is maybe a little easier because you can get somebody on the phone that's actually an offensive line coach, and he can sort of develop a relationship. Uh, there's not really any sense that there's going to be any kind of visits happening um, unless it's an unofficial visit and it's unguided at this point. The NCAA said that the recruiting dead period is going to go until April this year at the very least. So you're not going to have that ability for somebody to come in and be able to build, you know, an in-person relationship. Uh, but they can at least get on the phone and he can talk to them about what he's done. And, um, you know, Clay McGuire has, recruit, uh, has, has coached and developed some pretty good players. You know, some guys have gone on the NFL from Washington State. So – I think from an evaluation standpoint, he certainly got some good players. He pegged some good players. Um, it was an interesting place to be in with USC. They're kind of between a rock and a hard place, I think, with that hire because you want to see the recruiting improve on the offensive line, right? So you think, oh, we need to get a guy that's a great recruiter. But sometimes those guys that are good recruiters are not necessarily good developers of talent. And the talent has slipped enough now at the offensive line position, in my opinion, 
that you do need a guy that has worked with a bunch of three stars. He's worked with those guys that are, you know, lesser talents, at least in the eyes of the publications, and been able to build them up. And so you don't want to bring in a guy that was a great recruiter and recruited a bunch of five stars and coached a bunch of five stars. And then he comes in and he goes, oh, these guys, mm, you know, I need to recruit better players. Well, yeah, okay, but that's in the future. <laughs> right now, you got to figure out who the heck your left tackle is. you got to figure out who, you, who your right tackle is. And that guy's probably going to be a three-star guy. So if you don't have any familiarity or confidence in coaching those players up, then that's a problem. And a guy like Clay McGuire, he probably laughs at, you know, three-star. Oh, shoot, I was with no stars at Washington State and Texas State. So that, from that standpoint, that's a good thing for USC. Now, as far as the 2021 class and who's left out there for USC, I know everyone wants an update on Rajon Davis. Do you have one, Gerard? <laughs> no, I mean, at this point, he just came off his uh, unofficial, unguided visit to Ohio State. Um, there's still quite a bit of confidence that USC is the team. Um, but, you know, we have to sort of let a couple days go by and kind of get a little more vibe. There's a lot of smoke around, oh, yeah, he really liked Ohio State, and maybe, you know, he's, he's going to pick Ohio State. Um, but, you know, again, it, it's, it's just too early after that to know if that's real or not. A lot of the sources we talked to are pretty confident that he's going to end up at USC and that, you know, he's been locked in for USC for a while. So, you know, we'll see if there's been a, a really big shift or anything like that um, in the coming weeks. Um, another guy that USC is recruiting is the Dallas offensive tackle, who is a three-star. I believe he's, you know, on his way to being a four-star is Austin Nuke, uh, 6'4", uh, 265 pounds, 270-pound offensive tackle, who was committed to Holy Cross at the time that USC offered him a scholarship. So that's interesting. I mean, that's a good evaluation point because now he's got offers from Oklahoma, Texas. A lot of the schools that have rides now that are open, you know, they re-looked at him and reevaluated him and kind of circled the wagons, and now he's decommitted from Holy Cross. And it does seem like USC might be slipping a little bit there. I think they were probably top two, top three, but now you get Oklahoma and you get Texas and you get all these other schools involved that are closer to home it might be more difficult to be able to get him. Uh, he is a very good student, and I know USC is going to be selling that, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the academics and the networking and everything after football. But I think, you know, just the, the not being able to be on campus and not being able to unofficially visit, that's a big deal. If he's able to go down to Austin and take a visit to Texas or go up to Oklahoma or something like that, it, that could be a deal breaker, you know, these days. So it's, it's hard to know, but, you know, I think that one slipped a bit for USC. I know the P kind of roasted USC staff for offering a kid from Holy Cross or, or who was committed to Holy Cross, but if they lose out on him, what does that really mean for the staff? Like, what are you expecting for the, the P reaction? Yeah, I mean, they can't really react uh, poorly, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you, you, you double down on, hey, you know, what are we doing? It's so pathetic, a Holy Cross type player and didn't really stop to look at the film or, you know, wait, you know, just a couple of weeks because he ended up getting, you know, Oklahoma State and, and Stanford and I think Arkansas came in. So he had, you know, a few offers there right around that time that uh, he was offered from USC, but um, even more offers just more recently. So, yeah, I mean, from an evaluation standpoint, you watched him and he's an athletic kid. He's got good feet. Um, you can see where he could put on some weight. He plays a really small school in Texas. So it's not like, you know, Joseph Manjack, um, who's playing, you know, six, eight football, um, is definitely smaller taps football, which is the parochial schools in Texas, which are kind of, 
segregated a bit um, in the uh, in how they play. They they really kind of just play with each other, and all the top kids tend to go to the public schools. It's almost the exact opposite of what you see in Southern California. Um, so competition wise, there's still a lot of questions with him. But um, yeah, I, I, P can't say anything really. They, 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 you know, the, the the Trojan fans that are on there making fun of USC for that uh, scholarship offer. Have to basically just say, oh, whatever. You know, <laughs> well, we we didn't want him anyways. You know, I guess they just have to go with that. I guess we'll see. We'll see how the P reacts. Um, a guy I forgot to mention when we were talking about the portal was Henry Tooto Oto. I think I say that like Vic Tooto Oto, which is not correct. I think it's Henry Tooto. You're gonna correct me. It's yeah, it's Tooto. Okay, there you go. To to o yeah. Henry To-O-To. He was a guy who was recruited by USC. He ends up going to Tennessee. He put his name in the portal. What are you expecting on that front, Gerard? I mean, we've heard some good things. Uh, I was told last week it sounded like it was Alabama and USC. Um, Some other schools have gotten involved, but I was told flat out if he comes west and he comes closer to home, it's going to be USC. So USC's got that angle. I mean, if he's coming because he wants to play in front of his family and he just wants to be closer to home, then it's USC. If he decides he wants to stick out in SEC country and he feels like, you know, he can compete at Alabama and he can get that starting job, then he might take that opportunity and be one and done. Uh, Alabama obviously has a ton of depth there. They've got some really good players. Um, They had a transfer that was a five-star linebacker just a couple years ago from Washington go there They've got dudes, right? You would expect that, and they do. But they did li- uh, lose Dylan Moses, who's a former five-star starter at inside linebacker, and he's going to go on to the NFL draft as a senior. So there is a spot there that Alabama's uh, pitching to him. And Alabama was one of his finalists, you know, the first time around when he was coming out of high school. It was Alabama, Tennessee, and Washington. So it's really a matter of, you know, does he want to be closer to home or not? And if that ultimately dictates where he goes, then USC's – probably going to be the school and that would be huge for usc it's interesting i mean it's you know usc does return their two inside linebacker starters uh technically from from last year i mean they, re- they recruit uh they return kadai manga and um randall Gal- uh, go for so yeah raylan randall raylan i just get them mixed <laughs> up all the time um but they they you know those those two guys are the stars and they do return but you would think uh uh, Toto is a you know one of the top returning tacklers in the SEC. He was a starter at Tennessee. He was playing up to the billing, you know, of being a high four star, you know, low four star guy or low five star guy. So he could come in and potentially get that job. And they lose Palaia Oteote for USC though. I mean, in general, it's just a depth issue. I, I think is really you know where they they need depth at linebacker. They need some guys because they've got some returners. But so many of those guys are returning from major injuries, you know, whether yep. it be, um, uh, you know, with, with uh, Solomon, you know, Tui Pupu, who's just not been able to really play at all yeah. because of various different injuries. And you've got Jordan Iosefa there. Um, you've got Elijah. You've got you've, all those guys are, are, are coming off of major injuries. So, uh, you know, Ty, Tyler Katoa, Taylor Katoa, excuse me, is is, you know, potentially a guy, but he's coming off of a mission. Don't really know what he's going to be able to offer. Um, and he had an injury as well. I mean, it, it's it's a very kind of a mash unit at linebacker. And so, you know, what we saw from them last year, the linebacker position definitely developed, I think, from that Utah uh, game on. And a lot of people will have questions. And I, I'll throw that at you, actually, what, what you think about this, because I've been asked this several times. Paul Teote might end up at Ohio State. 
And I was surprised that I said, wow, you know, you know Ohio State would take – because what we saw last year was USC's linebacker core, specifically an inside linebacker with Ray, Raymond Scott and, uh, and Goforth and uh, Kanai, they played much better than USC was playing when they had Palie there. Yeah. And I would say that by the end of the year, I mean, that was really sort of – that they were getting the majority of the tackles in the games and everything – uh, what do you see from that? And do you think that they're actually a bit, was it just those linebackers starting to understand the system and getting more acclimated to it? Or was it actually Palie was a little bit of a, of a weak link there? I see. I think it's a bit of both. You know, I, I think we saw from the inside linebackers on the whole, they got better as the season progressed. And so I think that's just, they didn't really have the spring to install. And then you have those kind of, uh, right. training camp practices where they had to kind of rush and install Todd Orlando's defense. And Orlando said himself that like, he really felt like after the uh, U of A game, that the defense started to really get it. But that's also when EA came out with his concussion. So, you know, chicken or the egg, but I do think that EA kind of had an issue with just reacting, you know, he was a little slow to read developing plays. And I just felt like that was always something where he just looked a little lost at times. And then you put in a new scheme and, and you had Clay Helton really hype up EA coming to the season, which I think didn't help him, to be honest, mm-hmm. because people were expecting even more. And there were, EA came in with such high expectations to begin with. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. But I wonder if EA didn't get concussed and if he's still developing under Todd Orlando how the season plays out and how he looks. But I do think there was an, just an EA issue to begin with. And something that I touched on with uh, Bill Krulik, and we were just talking about Pallier and kind of, you know, how he developed. And he was under the impression that he was, you know, a really big-time player for USC. And I said, you know, he hasn't really gotten to that point yet. I think a lot of the impact player talk you get from the ESPNs and the CBSs and et cetera, the national people who cover USC – comes from him being a five-star linebacker out of high school. It's not been because of production. He hadn't gotten yeah. there to that point yet. Yeah. And I think one of the major questions that I still have, you know, lingering is whether he is an inside linebacker because yeah. in high school he played off the edge and he was a very north-south guy. And I think in Todd Orlando's defense, I think ultimately agree with you that if, you know, some more time he would have gotten better, but is his ceiling really the best at inside linebacker or is he better playing off the edge? Because I think he was really bad sideline to sideline. That was really where you saw him get caught on block. He just looked a little slow and he just didn't look comfortable in that ability to get lateral. And I think in a lot of these defenses nowadays, you got, you just got to have more speed. And I think that's where, you know, if you're recruiting a guy like Rayshon Davis, who is also a guy that plays off the edge, but clearly much faster, clearly a better shuttle time, a guy that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, he, he in, in, in a certain defense, he could almost play safety. That's why Raymond Scott, I think, had some success. I think those type of linebackers are going to be ultimately more successful in that type of scheme. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a, a ton of sense, and I agree. So something that we haven't talked about yet, but it's something that we put on the boards and put a story up right before starting this podcast, Chris Claiborne, uh, who is a quality control analyst for USC, is headed to Arizona State to become their next linebackers coach. Uh, what do you got on that, Gerard? It's just a big opportunity for Chris to be able to get on the field. And I think that was really the motivation was being an on-the-field coach. And this was a weird year because not only are you a quality guy, and you're kind of behind the scenes and, and more in the office, 
uh, just by title, but I mean, in, in some instances, they weren't in the office at all because they weren't essential staff. So it was a weird work at home, not really a part of the staff, sort of this auxiliary staff position. And now you're going to be, you know, coaching under Antonio Pierce, uh, who's the defensive coordinator at the linebacker position. And you're going to be right there in the thick of things, uh, working for a guy like Herm Edwards, who's an NFL coach. And you still have Marvin Lewis there who's in the, in the background. We'll see if he sticks around. So potentially he might go back to the NFL, but he's an analyst for Arizona State. He's the one who actually left his full-time co-coordinator role uh, to, to be an analyst, and that gave them room to be able to hire uh, Claiborne full-time. So they've been after him for a while. It was interesting because the other guy that if they didn't hire Claiborne was going to be Hutchings, Michael Hutchings. So they were basically – full on we're going to get one of those guys we're going to be able to plunder usc uh for one of their guys one of their support staff guys and Hutchins had a great presentation um last week i think it was late last week over the weekend and there was some talk that actually was last week because we put it in the war room uh there was talk like maybe he got the job after that there you know there's was, was a lot of uh positive vibes about michael hutchings um but i think you know, this was sort of going to be Claiborne's job from the start. I, I think they basically made room to try to get Chris Claiborne there, and he was ultimately the guy that they offered, and he took the job today. So um, it's a it's a great jump for him. Um, for USC, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a very well-qualified support staff guy that moves on. He's going to have it on his resume and potentially could end up back at USC one day. So – you know, he was doing a lot of stuff for the offense and he was really just watching film and working with uh, the running backs a lot. And, um, you know, being behind the scenes, uh, what you want from a recruiting standpoint is that presence. You want to be able to be able to get some guys. They, they lose Hayes Pollard also. Um, so they're going to have to replenish that support staff with uh, some more guys that can recruit, you know, some more guys that can get in front of kids and have some cachet because, you know, you, you in the in the support staff, arena you have the guys that are the organizers the guys that um, do a lot of the legwork from the strategic standpoint and the board standpoint and trying to get everything organized for visits and etc and then you have the guys that you want in front of kids and those guys are very important also you know you have the gavin morrises you have the armand hawkins juniors you have the chris claiborne's you have those guys that sell and it's important that when you have those kids on campus for a limited amount of time, you don't waste their time with tour guides that can't sell. You know, you don't waste their time putting them in front of people that are going to sit there and talk about, you know, the library and read off an index card. You want people that can relate. You want people that have been there and done that. And that's what USC did a really good job of. And obviously, I mean, they obviously did a really good job of it because you've got schools going in and trying to get all these guys off the support staff. I mean, Armand Hawkins Jr. is a guy that's up for a GA job, and then you've got Oregon talking to him now. You've got, you know, Claiborne who gets a full-time job at ASU. You know USC did a good job because they got some good qualified people on the support staff. You just got to replenish those guys. You can't say, oh, well, darn it, you know, we hired a guy, and a year later he's gone. You say, we did a good job. We got to do another good job. We want to have guys that are coveted. It's just like with your regular full-time staff. You think Alabama's there, oh, you know, I'm not going to go hire any more qualified guys for offensive defensive coordinator because they keep, you know, other schools keep taking them away from us. No, they just have that cycle going of guys that – you know, have been there, have coached that. Guys have, you know, obviously relationships with Nick Saban. But, you know, guy like Jeremy Pruitt, 
he went through the whole gambit with, with Alabama. He was a high school coach that got hired as an assistant guy and went all the way up from position coach to end up being a, a coordinator. And then he leaves the program and he goes to Tennessee and now he's fired because of recruiting violations. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Uh, you know, it's, it's Tosh Lapoy, Steve Sarkeesian, um, uh, Mike Loxley. I mean, all those guys were support staff guys at Alabama before they went on and they ended up getting, you know, if you're USC, what you want to do is you, you want to have the amount of success where your, your position coaches end up getting coordinator jobs and then your coordinators end up getting head coaching jobs. And then you got support staff guys that end up filling in those roles as well. So it's a, it's a real system of sorts. You know, you say, Hey, look at you come in here. We'll, we'll pay you. Okay. You know, as a support staff guy, you'll be an analyst. But in a, in a year or two, we're going to be a full-time position coach here because somebody else is going to move up to be the coordinator, and that coordinator is going to move up to be a head coach. And so you got Butch Jones, and you've got all those guys that keep coming through Alabama that you know they, everybody keeps laughing like, oh, yeah, there goes Alabama. They're going to have another this head coach or that head coach is going to be an analyst there. But those analysts end up moving into full-time jobs, so they're okay with that. you know. And a lot of times they're still getting paid by the school that uh, fired him, <laughs> you know, so it's like, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll just be here for an analyst for a year or two, and then I'll get my full-time job here. And hopefully I'll, I'll be able to move into that coordinator job or from here, go somewhere else and get a coordinator job. So the P isn't taking this lightly though. They're, they're upset that Chris is leaving. Isn't this to be expected though, when you're in a support staff role and you're doing a good job? Yeah. That's yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, 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 mean, I know, it should but be I just, expected. I wanted to make it clear because I think that I've already read on the P that Kelton <sighs> should be terminated immediately for letting Claiborne leave. So I know. I I I, I, I know. I don't. I you just yeah. It's like with the war room every week. You know, we're like trying to explain and reiterate things, and you feel like a dummy. Like you're like, how, why do we have to explain this again? But. Yeah, people are just always looking for a reason to fire Clay Helton because they feel like he's not done a good job, he's not going to do a good job, and so any excuse, any weird reach of a reason, it becomes, oh, well, see, this is another reason why you have to fire Clay Helton. No, it has nothing to really do with Clay Helton. It, they had a good year, successful enough that you know Chris Claiborne, is a guy that's a, a quality control uh, analyst is up for a full-time job. Now, obviously, it wasn't just everything he did at USC. I mean, the guy's a former Buckus winner, first-round pick, played in the NFL. He knows his stuff. <laughs> He's a big-time name. There's, you know, a reason why Arizona State likes him as being a full-time role. But, you know, I don't really see where, you know, USC really had – they couldn't – what could you they do? I, I think the only argument that could be made by a Trojan fan is that, well, USC has an opening. They have a full-time job. It's open why wouldn't they put Chris Claiborne as a linebacker coach under Todd Orlando in that role, you know, but that role doesn't exist right now. And that's, and Todd Orlando's okay with it. You know I mean? It, it, I could see where it's like, okay, you had that role open up and it was a linebacker coach that left and you say, okay, we need to replace him. Oh, well, we've got Chris Claiborne on the, okay. That, that's an obvious thing, but I don't think that's what USC wants to do. I think they want to keep that, opening on the offense. And I do think they want to bring in another receivers coach, maybe just a tight ends coach, but I think that's sort of what they're thinking is right now. That's the makeup of the offense, or excuse me, that's the makeup of the team. That's the way Clay Helton wants it. And so, I mean, you could, yeah, you could blame him for that or whatever, but I, 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 yeah, it's, it's really just, it's tiresome. We know, you know, you guys don't like Clay Helton and we know why there's justifiable reasons. I'm not saying that there's not, yeah. but it's just, everything becomes, Oh, obviously this is because of Clay Helton and he should be fired because of this. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, one thing I don't think we've touched on is uh, the fact that Isaiah Polamau announced that he was returning for the 2021 season. What does that mean as far as uh, the depth that USC has at the safety position? And is it a good thing having a more veteran guy, a team captain there to kind of uh, coach up the, the young guys that USC has added? Yeah, it's huge. It's, it's, un- it's unexpected. You know, we really thought that Isaiah Polamau was going to leave also along with Talanova Funga. And that was going to leave a huge void in the production of the defense. And the defense being one that uses the safety position quite a bit. Talanova Funga led the team in tackles. And Isaiah Polamau wasn't far that down the list on total tackles for the season either. So he had a really good year. Um, but he obviously put together more tape and, and be the guy and maybe do himself, you know, the, the job that Telenoa did this year. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's big for the young guys. It's big that you don't lose Telenoa and him because that's a, that's compounding, you know, that loss even more. Um, and it, and it allows, you know, I think the coaching staff just a lot more margin of error trying to replace Telenoa Hufanga, right? Um, maybe, you know, you could even play around with, with putting Isaiah there at that spot. It's a little different spot. He'd be playing near the line of scrimmage more. But I think Isaiah's very comfortable. And obviously, a guy at 6'4", you know, 215 pounds, he's big enough to play that spot. And maybe that's a better spot for him ultimately when you're looking at the NFL and his draft status, you know, a Sam linebacker in some positions, playing near the line of scrimmage more. So there's that potential where you can actually have him uh, replacing Teleno Hufunga, which would be the best replacement you could possibly have. There's nobody you were going to get um, out of the draft uh, or after, out of the recruiting class or the porthole uh, to replace Teleno Hufunga, probably better than Isaiah Polamau. And then maybe potentially putting Xavion Alford over there, the, the transfer that they got from Texas at the single high spot, the post safety spot, which is what Isaiah Polamau pl- plays right now. So, you know, and you've got the freshman there, and yeah, no, so it's it's very, very big. It's it's definitely, again, another reason why USC should be a good team next year. There shouldn't really be a drop-off. I think ultimately that comes down to the offensive line and whether, you know, they can keep Keaton Slovis on his two feet, you know, keep him healthy, uh, get the ball downfield, because you're going to have a guy like Gary Bryant getting more reps and a guy that can get downfield and be explosive with those plays. Um, but you, in order to run those plays, you, your quarterback's going to have to hold on to the ball a little bit, and that means your offensive line has to block. Um, but defensively, I think um, they should still be very, very good, and that's uh, key for them in that, in that defensive backfield because they're going to lose, you know, uh, Elijah Griffin, and that's a loss for them as well. Um, but you're going to get some talent there. Uh, but having a guy that can quarterback a bit in the defensive secondary with some experience is, is a big, big boost for them. Yeah. You mentioned Xavion Alford. He, I believe, is on campus. He's enrolled as an early enrollee. What are you expecting for him? Is he an immediate impact type of guy? He's an immediate impact type of guy if he's healthy. You know, he had a knee injury when he was coming out of high school, so he missed his senior year. And so he kind of transitioned a bit, you know, from that knee injury for his freshman year at Texas and didn't play a whole lot his freshman year at Texas. But, you know, coming out of high school, one of the best safeties in the country and a guy that is a tremendous ball hawk, uh, really good ball skills. I saw him play in person a couple of times with seven on and he was uh, he was the guy like for those teams. I mean, he was the, the clutch player. He was the guy that even on offense, they try to get the ball to. And so you, you, you notice that, you know, I, I noticed that I noticed that with high school football 
those guys that are supposed to be top guys, when it comes crunch time, who's getting the football? Where are they looking? You know, are they, are they, they, they really trying to force the ball to that player because they believe in that player. And you know if there's that belief and that confidence, then that's because he's been consistent. And that's a big thing in football is consistency. And so that's a kid that, um, you know, nine interceptions as a junior. He was a ball hawk and a guy that plays really well in space. He played more of a nickel safety sort of linebacker hybrid position at Texas. He's not a big guy. He's about, I think he's like six foot, 195 pounds, if, if that much. So, you know, you could say, well, he could be a guy that could come in and play for Tolanoa Hufunga. But I don't necessarily just assume that. I, I think he could potentially be even a single high guy because he does play well in space. Um, but that's a big, a big name if he's healthy. Again, if he's healthy, if he's able to come in and be that guy that he was out of high school, I mean, one of the best players in that class, then yeah. I mean, it's USC potentially defensively might not lose a beat at all. I mean, they might be better next year defensively. When you think of, you know, they're going to get a guy like Corey Foreman that you can put in there as a pass rusher. You're bringing back really all your best pass rushers outside of Marlon Tui Polotu. But segue, they got Ishmael Sopser from Alabama, who is a former high four-star, five-star level guy who's, you know, 6'4", 330 pounds, who should be able to hit the ground running and be able to kind of fill in for Marlon quite a bit. So, and, and that, that, you know, nose tackle position is not necessarily a position where you're looking in that defense to have a guy that's a great pass rusher. You really just want a space eater. It's the linebackers that have to do a lot of the legwork. And that's what we saw. It was interesting because that was the evolution of that defense during the year. Early in the year, Marlin was the guy making a bunch of tackles. He, he really made his draft stock based on his first two, three games. <laughs> I mean, after that, he really sort of dropped off in terms of his production of tackles, but that's because the linebackers became more involved. And that is traditionally what the tight front does. The tight front is playing a shell game with those inside linebackers. One of them's coming almost every play. And those are the guys that are going to make a lot of the tackles for losses and make a lot of tackles at the line of scrimmage. The nose tackle, the zero technique, is the guy that you really want to be able to take a blocks. And so that's kind of more what we saw from the defense at the end of the year. So if Sopcher could just come in and play and just be consistent, because that's what he didn't have at Alabama, that's going to be a huge, you know, again, USC might not be, not, not really miss a beat. And in terms of what the defense does and what they want it to do, those linebackers are going to be running free. Yeah. Well, Gerard, I feel like we covered a lot. Is there anything else that we, we need to cover for this episode? <laughs> Something else that I did here today and this will be a little scoop for this deal, is that it sounds like Josh Jackson is probably going to stay on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, the former Narbonne wide receiver, three-star, uh, who's a freshman last year, um, part of the 2019 class, he came in as a receiver and just towards the end of the year ended up moving to playing some corner because they just they had all these guys go down. You had Dorian Hewitt. I think you had some COVID protocol contact tracing issues where you were missing guys. You had guys that were hurt. And so they put him on the defensive side of the ball. And I thought was hearing that that was going to be a temporary thing, but it sounds like he's sort of looking to stay at that position and wants to try to play a little bit of defensive back. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see if he ends up playing defensive back for spring ball. That's the expectation now. 
um, and see if he stays there because, you know, USC could use him at receiver. Receiver's not the deepest in the world, um, whereas, you know, they got some young guys coming in at cornerback that uh, I think a lot of people look forward to and guys that could potentially come in and, and actually win that starting job that's opened up now with Elijah Griffin gone. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how does that make sense as far as him being able to see the field? You'd, you would assume he would have a better opportunity as a wide receiver. I mean, you've got you both have a starting position open. You know, there's the fourth receiver spot there that's going to be open uh, with Amon Ra leaving and Tyler Vaughn. You know, they both leave, but you automatically, you know, Brew McCoy is going to, you know, be a starter. And you know, Drake is going to be a starter. And you know that Gary Bryant's going to be a starter. Like he, I think, did enough in spots last year where you go, yeah, he, he's going to be that guy. And you, you have to put him there. So you really got that one spot that's still open which, you know, it could be the other slot spot or it could be outside. I guess it just depends on what they do, who they want to move around and, and what the play is going to be. And then on defense, you've got Elijah Griffin. And it's just maybe, you know, Josh Jackson just feels like he can fill that spot better than the receiver spot. He really has always been a receiver. Um, we've always known him as a being receiver and kind of, you know, being a guy a little bit in the profile of a Tyler Vons as a receiver. Uh, but maybe he feels like that four spot – there's somebody else there that could could uh, that could fill it. I mean, you know, Kyle, Kyle Ford's obviously coming off of injury. Um, I'm trying to think of who else they have on the roster at that receiver spot that would come in and play right away. And John Jackson, the third, would be the only other guy that they really have at that spot. So I agree with you. You know, it's like, you know, that that seems like a spot that you could definitely compete for. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe he just played cornerback. It just felt like I, he was better at that position towards the end of the year. I, from what I know, he only practiced there about two weeks. So we'll see. You know, I mean, I, like I said, it, it, I, I heard it today. I was told today he's, he's staying over on the defense. It surprised me, but we'll see. You know, I mean, he might be a change of heart by the time he, you know, actually gets out there and, you know, there's spring ball and you start to look around. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I can't, again, Katie Nixon is coming in and Katie, Katie Nixon is not coming in to sit on the bench. You know, he's, he's going to be a fifth year guy. Um, he wants to come in and play. So, you know, he, he definitely fits offensively schematically what USC does. Um, but I, you know, expectation wise, I'm not necessarily like blown away. Like, Oh man, he's going to come in and he's going to be this big time dynamic, blah, blah, blah. I think the guy that I'm most excited about seeing on the offensive side of the ball next year is going to be Gary Bryant Jr. I mean, if they play it right, that's the guy who takes the offense to a whole nother level. Interesting. I think it's a new class. It's a new era of wide receivers in my mind because now that you have Tyler Vaughn's gone, he was such a staple. It's, it's new faces for me in that sense. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a different feel, but, you know, I, I think it's more dynamic because – Amon Ra, as good as he was, was still a bit more of a possession guy. And, and obviously, Tyler Vaughn is a possession guy. And if you have Drake London, you got Bruce McCoy there, it's really a, a group of possession guys. And you can see where, okay, I'm, we're going to run zone defense, and we're just going to play it short, and we can sort of take away a lot of what USC wants to do. But when you interject a guy like Gary Bryan in there, that guy could blow the top off of that defense at any time. Like I've seen people silly – Silly moves by defensive coordinators in high school put just a single guy over the top on him and even off the line, and he just runs by people. And so that's sort of a dynamic we really haven't seen too much with USC. You know, maybe with like a Marquise Lee, uh, less so with a Robert Woods, but a guy that's there that's a consistent receiver, got good hands, can run block, but also, I mean, legitimately run 
like, you know, sub 10, five type of guy that can get North and South on you. And that's just going to open up things so much more underneath for a guy like Brew McCoy or Drake London that are the bigger physical receivers that, you know, you're going to use more as pass possession offense. So that's why I, you know, and, and as a kick returner, obviously, you know, help win that game against UCLA yeah. just with that kick return alone. Yeah. That's a guy that, you know, you just always looked at and said, man, why didn't USC get more guys like that? You know, it's more speed. And so they finally got a guy like that. We're going to see if they're going to use him. Well, that's the big question because, you know, I think that was what we were all waiting for with Bayless Jones and that never really came to fruition. Do you feel like they'll actually know how to use Gary Bryant's speed properly in that sense? I think with Bayless Jones, I think athletically he had the good speed, but he wasn't a very good football player. I think awareness-wise, he was some stiffness in the hips. He was a guy that you really, towards the end of his career at USC, started questioning, well, maybe you should put him at running back. Like, I'm not really feeling him as a receiver. I think with Gary Bryant, the difference is you've got a, an exceptional athlete, but you've also got a very good football player. And so that's sort of the difference of, you know, Valus Jones is not making the catches that Gary Bryant's going to be able to make. He's not going to do those things after the catch that Gary Bryant can do. Um, just in general, like, he's just not – that guy and I and I've you know I've saw Drake Jackson at Corona Centennial, Corey Foreman at Corona Centennial. Yeah, I mean, Gary Bryant was that guy. Like, he was right up there with those guys in terms of being able to change a game. And just you just make a mistake as a defense, just a a slight error. And if you got the quarterback that can get the ball downfield, and again that's the big to me that's the bigger question is like is Keaton Slovis going to be right this year? Is his arm going to be right? And is he going to be upright? Those are the two questions, yeah. right? Can you stay <laughs> on his feet? It, yeah. Because the offensive line is blocking well enough. And again, we get into splits and, and all this talk of, of, you know, different type of offensive line and whether they approach things differently. Somebody had posted a picture on the P of the splits at USC actually decreasing. Like they got smaller over time for some reason, like from season to season, like last season to this season, which was an odd thing. And I don't know, that's a question for Graham Harrell, but you know, if they can if they can keep you know Slovis upright to be able to get that ball downfield, and he can get the ball downfield to a guy like Bryant, I mean, yeah, it's it's a touchdown. It it's the difference between you know having to go eighty yards and and do that thing and getting a guy like Bryant is is an eighty yards boom right away. Like you've got seven on the board. It's not oh we got down to the twenty now let's figure out if we've got a good red zone offense. You know, we can't run the ball in the red zone, so probably not. <laughs> it's it's a touchdown. It's like, cool. Okay, cool. Let's get out. Let's go get the kickoff team. Now, you know, it was one of those things that Reggie Bush did that USC had a hard time replacing was Reggie would take it 80 and he would score. And the guys that they try to replace him with would get 40. And then they, and then it's like, okay, now you got to make sure that you don't have any penalties. You don't have any stupid negative plays that completely yeah. kill the drive because just because you got to the 20 doesn't mean that you've got points, yeah. you know, and, and even if you got a field goal, it's not a touchdown. So having those guys that are that dynamic that can actually score touchdowns on any given play, man, you, you, oh, those guys are just, they're, they're invaluable. And Gary Bryant's one of those guys. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense. Alrighty, well, that's going to wrap it up for the Recruiting Blast podcast. That's Gerard Martinez. I'm Keely Orr. We'll see y'all next time. Let's go! It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.